Hello and welcome to the July 2018 edition of the Free Movement Immigration Update podcast. My name is Colin Yeo. This month I'm starting by discussing some developments in nationality law, particularly on children, also some stuff on deprivation and nullification of citizenship. I'm going to talk about the EU settlement scheme and the new immigration rules that have been introduced for that, um, which are currently being piloted. Um, While we await Brexit, EU law does still continue to apply, so we're going to be covering a judgment on the surrendering immigration route, as well as changes to the EU um, EEA regulations. And then finally, going to end with some material on asylum detention and the usual procedural update. If you want to claim CPD, that's Continuing Professional Development Points, for listening to this podcast, then head over to freemovement at www.freemovement.org.uk slash training and sign up as a member. We now have over 80 um, CPD hours of training materials available. So starting with nationality law, um, we put out a post on the really quite staggering amount of money that the Home Office is making from registering children as British citizens. Now, this is a process which is a bit different to um, acquisition of nationality by right, which is kind of automatically happens by law. It's different to naturalisation for adults. You've got to be over 18 to be naturalised. It's a kind of as of right um, application uh, if you're entitled, and yet you've got to make the application in order to become a British citizen, and also the Home Office is allowed to charge you a fee. Now, back in the day, the fee was, I think, about £35 or something like that when um, the British Nationality Act first came into force, and it's now over £1,000. So we plotted the numbers. We looked at um, the application fee and the application numbers, the registration numbers, from 2009-10 onwards, and then we plotted that against the number of registrations, and we found two interesting things. One is that the Home Office seems to have made over £100 million in the last five years from the really rather high fees that they're charging. And also that there does seem to be a drop in the number of registrations at the same time that the fees have been rising. So a bit of a, whether that's coincidence or correlation is for a statistician to decide. But certainly if you look at the chart, um, it's quite clear that there's a higher number of applications when there's low fees and there's a lower number of applications once the fees have increased. So quite concerning that the Home Office um, is charging such high fees that on the face of it, um, there seem to be less children being registered by their parents as British citizens as a consequence. Right, another issue on nationality law pertaining to children. This is a really interesting case and a, a very similar case was shortly afterwards widely reported in the media. The reported case, the High Court one, it's K, a child against Secretary of State for the Home Department, 2018, EWHC 1834 admin. Now, this involves the definition of parent and specifically the definition of father in the British Nationality Act 1981 at section 50 brackets 9 capital A of the Act. And the definition of father um, basically starts by saying that a child's father for the purposes of the Act is the husband at the time of the child's birth of the woman who woman who gives birth to the child and only if the woman doesn't have a husband um, can the biological father of the child be treated as the father for nationality law and this means that in this reported case and also the case that was much more widely reported in the media um, a couple of weeks later um, where a mother is still married to um, a gentleman who may be off the scene, out of contact with him, but the marriage hasn't been um, div- hasn't been annulled or, or, or ended or divorced or whatever. Um, then that father um, is technically in British nationality law still the father, and that means that the biological father cannot pass on his British citizenship to his child. 
Now, in this case, the K case, um, the High Court judge who was hearing the case, Helen Mountfield QC, held that um, that was discriminatory and it was incompatible with the Human Rights Act um, because the child was being worse treated than uh, than if the father, um, biological father, could be recognised. And therefore, the, a declaration of incompatibility was made. Now, the Home Office hadn't responded to that um, declaration of in, incompatibility, at least as far as I know, by the time the, 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 the later case hit the media. And I'm not sure whether the Home Office is looking to try to appeal that decision or not. Um, certainly, the Home Office had briefed QC for the case, um, so was treating it um, as an important case. Um, whether they decide that they're going to go away and amend the law as a result of that or going to try and take the case further... I just don't know, but certainly watch this space. It's it's an interesting one, and I've advised in similar cases previously. There's been a case in the media recently. There's this reported case, so it, it clearly is um, an ongoing issue issue for um, some children, certainly. Now, sticking with nationality law, I said I was going to cover some nullification and deprivation stuff. Now, this is really um, a freedom of information request that I made, and I've been digging around looking at nullification deprivation for the last couple of years and writing a few things about it. And I was really quite surprised to get an FOI request back, which revealed that there was a very substantial number of nullification decisions compared to citizenship deprivation decisions, particularly um, in 2013, 14 and 15. And basically, the number of nullifications increases very slightly in 2012. And then there's just a huge number in um, 2013, almost... must be not far off 200 basically about 180 i think nullification decisions in 2013 and then it dropped down again in 2014 drops further in 2015 and has probably declined um since then um at the end of 2017 you've got the Hisage case in the supreme court where the home office accepted that basically it'd been unlawfully nullifying um citizenship in a lot of cases So what these FOI figures revealed is that essentially the Home Office has been unlawfully nullifying British citizenship in literally hundreds of cases over the last few years. So frankly, it's a bit of a mystery why you get this sudden spike in the nullification numbers. It's perhaps not a mystery um, why the Home Office was pursuing that in some ways, because basically nullification is a much easier process for the Home Office to follow than deprivation. Deprivation carries a right of appeal. It's got to be directly linked um, to the uh, acquisition of citizenship where it's um, done on on deception grounds. And um, also nullification has immediate and also retrospective effect. So when you get your citizenship nullified, it's that you were never a British citizen, whereas if you are deprived of your British British citizenship, it means that that takes effect when the order is made. And um, that has quite important implications for family members. So a child, for example, who's been born and who who was thought to be British because the father was British, um, if the father's citizenship is nullified and uh, the, the, the child could have problems then because it may turn out the child isn't British either, whereas if the father's um, citizenship is deprived, um, then the um, father was at least was British at the time of birth and therefore the child would retain their British citizenship. And there's no question about that. So um, it, it, it's quite interesting. I thought it was worth flagging up um, for lawyers because clearly there have been a very su- substantial number of these nullification cases. And in the Hisage case in the Supreme Court, the Home Office accepted that that was unlawful. And we know that there is a team reviewing um, all of these cases and nullification decisions are all being or have been already withdrawn. 
And that can be um, quite confusing from a legal point of view because it, it turns out that basically these people who thought they weren't British citizens because they'd had they'd, they'd been nullified um, actually have been British citizens all along because the Home Office is saying that the decision was unlawful and they're withdrawing those decisions. So um, it leaves people in a, a very tricky situation. In the meantime, they're, they're, they're left wondering whether they're now going to have deprivation action brought against them and so on. So flag that up. It is a big issue. Um, there's, there's hundreds of people affected by this, by this, so do watch out for it. Right, finally on nationality stuff, um, there was an amendment to the British Nationality General Regulations 2003 um, enabling um, deprivation of citizenship by email, essentially. And um, this allows um, not just for deprivation to be done by email, but for the email to be sent either to the person or to the address number provided um, or to a legal representative, whether it is actually received or not. And it also enables service to file, which is, of course, actually not being served at all in in home office parlance um, where they can't affect service. So um, it's certainly become much easier under these amendments, the regulations for deprivation decisions to be served. Moving on to some EU law stuff, we've got a, an important statement of changes. This is um, the formal reference CM9675, but the, the big and only change really that we're looking at here is the introduction of a new Appendix EU into the immigration rules. And this was ahead of the um, beginning of the pilot scheme in August 2018 for um, EU citizens in the northwest at uh, certain hospitals and universities, I think. Um, to make applications for what the Home Office insists on calling settled status, but which immigration lawyers know and understand is in fact indefinite leave to remain. So we've got a um, self-contained, basically, set of distinct immigration rules for the settled status scheme called Appendix EU. Um, The appendix, it disapplies several of the bits of the immigration rules which would normally apply. So, for example, the general grounds for refusal. And it also defines certain terms such as child and dependent relative, which have got special meanings within Appendix EU. So it's essentially a very self-contained set of rules. I'm not going to cover that in any more detail for now. We'll have some proper training once the pilot scheme um, is extended and goes live properly. Um, Just sort of suffice to flag it up that it is there in the immigration rules um, now. And that is the future for EU citizens in the UK, it would seem. I think it would be fair to say that campaign group The Three Million wasn't terribly impressed. Um, They've published a legal analysis of the settled status scheme, um, which is quite critical of certain aspects of it, in particular the legal vehicle of using just the immigration rules. Um, They're critical of using secondary legislation, which they say breaches Section 9 of the EU Withdrawal Act 2018. And The Three Million is particularly strongly opposed to the lack of a physical document which evidences settled status. And I can absolutely see where they're coming from on this one, because... Um, not only are EU citizens having to make an application here, they're having to pay for it. And then at the end of that process, if it's successful, they don't even get physical proof of status. Now, the Home Office say that that's great um, because it prevents um, oversharing and undersharing data. It's always up to date and it prevents abuse and fraudulent applications. Um, but the problem is, of course, the hostile environment where you've got employers, landlords and others will probably want to see physical status, physical proof of papers, just like other migrants, rather than having to phone some home office hotline or some online lookup tool that is probably going to be broken um, some of the time, at least anyway, and which is just annoyance as far as um, those people are concerned. So some some real questions here and problems potentially with the way that the settled status scheme is actually going to work. 
Um, we also put out in July a very interesting piece by um, Alexander Schmick, which is really about the status of Irish citizens in the UK and how Brexit is going to affect them. Now, I'm not going to go over that in detail either, but it, it's really interesting if you're um, into this kind of thing, basically, and talking about how um, British law moved on from the Ireland Act 1949, um, why it doesn't um, really do the job that it's supposed to do anymore, why um, the treatment of the Irish is basically a matter of policy at the moment in UK law rather than a matter of protected rights, and that that's basically just not good enough, um, suggesting that really we need um, further legislation. So um, do take a look at that if you're um, campaigning on or interested in these issues. Um, we also saw the Brexit white paper in July. Now, this was um, a statement of basically what the UK would like to get out of um, the withdrawal from the EU. Now, of course, what the UK would like to get isn't the same necessarily as what the UK is going to get. And what we're particularly interested here on free movement um, is immigration issues. So we've cut and pasted into that blog post the sections on what the um, what the UK government calls mobility rather than um, immigration, because um, immigration is presumably... Uh, dirty word of some sort these days. There's some interesting snippets in there. The UK proposing, for example, a, um, bizarrely, I think, in my, in my view at least anyway, um, a youth mobility scheme with EU citizens, um, which would obviously be rather age discriminatory just by its nature um, and effectively um, replicating the old working holiday maker scheme, which we've seen continued as tier five for the points-based system these days. Um, but applying that to EU countries. And you can imagine that that might well be popular with young people in the UK and also the EU. Um, but I can imagine that the EU wouldn't be terribly impressed that older people wouldn't be able to use it. So, um, yeah, it's just one of the ideas in there. It's an interesting one. Um, we'll see if that's what happens or, or not in due course, I guess. On to some proper legal stuff. We had a decision from the um, Court of Justice of the European Union in the case of Bangor against the UK, which is a really important case involving Surinder Singh and um, extended family members and also rights of appeal for extended family members. And to cut a long story short, in this case, the CJEU holds that the Home Office, UK Home Office approach to um, refusing to recognise Surinder Singh rights for extended family members was wrong. And for example, a durable partner is entitled to rely on surrendering just as much as a spouse is. That doesn't, it's not quite the same as to say they've got a right of entry, um, because of course an extended family member doesn't have a right of entry. They're treated differently to immediate or close family members such as spouses. But um, you certainly can't have a general rule, blanket rule, um, immediately rejecting all applications because of the class of applications. So that is a big interesting development and it means the Home Office is going to have to amend its approach to the treatment of um, extended family members. Um, also very interesting for, I think, to my mind, suggesting that judicial review is not an adequate um, remedy where uh, the rights of a, an extended family member are rejected by the Home Office, where an application by an extended family member is rejected by the Home Office. Um, watch this space because that's quite a novelty, frankly. We've got a long line of case law saying that judicial review is an adequate remedy in EU law. But in this case, um, without um, directly addressing whether judicial review is adequate, um, the court says that an extended family member must have available to them a redress procedure in order to challenge a decision to refuse a residence authorization taken against them, following which the national court must be able to ascertain whether the refusal decision is based on a sufficiently solid factual basis and whether the procedural safeguards were complied with. Does judicial review really do that? 
Mm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. So watch this space, and that could be yet another instalment in the long-running saga of whether the tribunal's decision in Sala was... Um, well, it's just been... Everybody thinks it's wrong now, but um, just a question of how wrong it was and um, how, how badly the Home Office reacted to that. Also on EU stuff, we've saw some changes coming into effect for the EA regulations on the 24th of July 2018. I don't want to run through these in too much detail, just flag up the, the main changes, and there are quite a few of them. So changes for dual nationals, first of all, and this is imp- implementing the case of um, loons, um, which was, I think, in late 2017. So it's been quite a long delay in um, actually implementing that. And essentially it allows EU citizens who've moved to the UK um, to retain certain rights of free movement in the event that they become British later on. So quite an important um, decision, particularly in the context of Brexit and EU citizens who are now British benefiting from um, the rights of family reunion and so on. Um, also, um, the regulations were adjusted to take account of the case in Guza, which is about retaining self-employed status um, when in comparison to workers, basically. So um, self-employed people um, will retain their rights of um, residence as self-employed people uh, in a similar way to workers. Um, have a look at the detail of that if you're dealing with any such cases. Um, there's some surrendering cases, although not um, enough to deal with the um, Bangor case, but this is really, I'm not quite sure why, but adjusting the regulations slightly to be a bit more in line with the case of O and B, although frankly the adjustments don't look that significant and aren't likely to make a real difference in practice. Um, There's also some adjustments to the regulations on exclusion and deportation orders um, to make it clear that um, somebody who does have an exclusion or deportation order doesn't have a right of admission, initial right of residence, extended right of residence or permanent right of residence, um, which I think the Home Office pretty much thought anyway, but there you go. Um, Primary carers of EEA nationals also have a few adjustments under the regulations, um, and this is essentially um, applying the case of Chavez Vilches. Um, Take a look at that if you're dealing with any such cases. Also, deportation of permanent residents, the case of Vimero, um, is reflected a bit better into the regulations. And then there's several other um, adjustments as well. So take a look at that blog post. Um, I'll just give you the date of that quickly. It's the 11th of July 2018 um, by Nath Kibiki, if you are interested in those things. Moving on to a few cases, I'm going to start with a case called R Citizens UK against Secretary of State for the Home Department, reference 2018 EWCA Civ 1812. Now, this is a pretty shocking case in lots of ways, although at the same time, it's shocking, but not surprising, frankly. Um, This is to do with the children who are going to be resettled to the UK following the tearing down of the Calais camp at the end of 2016. And for some reason, the Home Office litigators have been extremely aggressive throughout a, a series of cases involving the rights of those children. And it's emerged in um, just basically purely by chance in other litigation. A number of emails emerged showing that the Home Office had basically lied to the court um, in an earlier legal challenge um, and said that basically reasons, um, full reasons, shouldn't be provided to the children or couldn't be provided to the children because that was a requirement of of the French authorities and also there was time pressure in conducting the operation. And it emerged later that that just wasn't true at all. And whether the lies were deliberate and malicious or or were completely accidental is for others to judge. The Court of Appeal um, 
suggested it might not be deliberate and that there was no reason to think there was bad faith. But frankly, if we if we put this alongside the rest of the litigation conducted by the Home Office and the aggression shown, um, one is left wondering. So um, it's an interesting one. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a concrete example of the Home Office being caught out, um, obviously misleading um, a judge in, in an asylum scenario. Um, We've got a post dated the 19th of July by Nicholas Webb on um, the Home Office approach in Sudanese asylum claims, which is well worth a look if you are dealing with a Sudanese asylum claim. Um, Nicholas managed to get hold of the Home Office lines to take in certain cases, particularly involving non-Arab Darfuris and whether they can relocate. And essentially it's about the Home Office trying to um, overturn an old country guidance case. So if you've got such a case, do take a look. It's quite important. Um, on a similar level, I'm not going to go into too much detail on this one. We've got another um, country guidance case on Iraqi Kurds and internal relocation. It's reference AAH Iraqi Kurds internal relocation CG 2018 UKUT 212 IAC. Um, I'm really not going to just go. It, it, it's quite a detailed one. I'm not going to go over it in detail now, um, but flag it up that it, there, there is an important new case if you are dealing with any such cases. Um, need to give a mention to Supreme Court's decision on asylum issues. It's a pretty unusual scenario. It's not one that arises, shall we say, in day-to-day practice, um, but obviously it's very important for those concerned. And this is to do with the um, sovereign base in Cyprus, the UK sovereign base in Cyprus. So the case is Bashir and others against Secretary of State for the Home Department's 2018 UKSC 45. And the Supreme Court decides some issues, and for example, one of those, which is important perhaps in political terms, if not in legal terms, which is that there is no right for refugees to move between the sovereign base in Cyprus and uh, mainland UK. So um, that's not something that can be read out of the Refugee Convention or or other um, treaties or whatever. Um, However, some other issues are left undecided um, by the Supreme Court, which felt that it hadn't had adequate arguments on them for various different legitimate reasons by the sounds of things. Um, So the case is is kind of slightly oddly partially decided, and um, I understand that there's going to be further submissions on the unresolved issues before a final judgment is issued. Um, Interesting post by CJ on the 23rd of July about migrants being detained indefinitely or made homeless by the new immigration bail system, which took effect in, I think it was January 2018. Now, BID, Bail for Immigration Detainees, have done some, um, and they're just an excellent charity full stop, they've done some excellent work on this, um, looking at the offers in principle um, of bail accommodation by the Home Office, which apparently were over 2,000 um, in the year leading up to um, the immigration bail system being introduced and were, I think, about 24, I think it was, in the year afterwards. So we've got a massive drop in the number of accommodation and principal offers by the Home Office. And what's happening, essentially, is that detainees are now no longer... A, and they had all sorts of problems previously, but they're, uh, they're simply no longer able to get accommodation offered by the Home Office if they're in detention um, in order to be released to somewhere, whether it's temporary or long-term or, or whatever. They just can't get accommodation. And that's meaning that they're staying in detention or they're being released to be street homeless, which you know, neither of which is, is, a, is a very good outcome at all. So deeply problematic there. And at the same time, we've got the Home Office um, introducing new powers of detention with immigration bail and apparently abusing them with a refusal to um, grant accommodation so that people can get out of detention. We've got Shore 2. So this is a follow-up to Shore 1, which is a, a report that was commissioned by the Home Office 
into vulnerable people in immigration detention. And we've had lots of nice noises from the previous Home Secretary, Amber Rudd, and also the current Home Secretary, Sajid Javid, about um, how welcome these reviews are and how important they are. Um, whether they actually implement them is the is is the big thing. So we've got some quite concrete um, proposals as well as a few slightly more ephemeral ones. But for example, the Home Office should no longer detain any adults over the age of 70 except in ex- exceptional circumstances. There's a suggestion that the Home Office should no longer seek to remove those who are born in the UK have been brought up there from an early age, which I can't imagine the Home Office um, acting on. And also a suggestion, for example, that um, the Home Office should roll out the use of body-worn cameras to all immigration removal centres and robustly monitor their use, which would um, help to deal with abuse actually in detention, which unfortunately um, does seem to occur in practice. So interesting report, um, and really we'll just have to wait and see whether it's actually implemented or whether the Home Office response is just nice words. As an example of how things go in practice, we've got the case of RKG against Secretary of State for the Home Department's 2018 EWHC 1767 admin. And this is a case where the Home Office was found to have unlawfully detained a victim of torture because they had failed to provide the um, required medical assessment and Rule 34, um, Rule 35 report within 24 hours. Um, when they did eventually um, assess the guy about, I think, a month after he'd initially been detained, they released him because the GP said that he was a victim of torture. And now on to a few procedural issues. So, case of QR Pakistan and um, against the Secretary of State for the Home Department's 2018 EWCA Civ 1413. And this is another example of fallout from last year's Supreme Court decision in Kiarian Bindlos about the deport first, appeal later policy and law. Now, QR in the cause of appeal doesn't really um, change the existing position much, um, given where we're at from previous tribunal and high court decisions, but it does kind of consolidate things and obviously it's court of appeal, so it's a a sort of higher level of guidance and so on. Essentially, it's reiterating that there is no automatic right to um, an in-country right of appeal and that um, where uh, basically out-of-country appeals aren't necessarily unlawful, you need to look at all of the factors that um, are dealt with in the Chiari and Bindloss case and also the later case of AG, AJ, including the possibility of giving evidence, the effectiveness of securing legal representation and receiving advice from legal legal representatives, the possibility of producing expert or other professional evidence, and the importance of hearing live evidence from that particular appellant. Um, Even if it is found that a certification was unlawful, the appellant doesn't necessarily get to return to the UK, depends on the facts, and also the first-tier tribunal is basically best placed to decide whether an individual's appeal should be heard in the UK, and it should do so following the earlier guidance given in the AJ case. So just a really a reiteration of what we where we already thought we were at with Kyari and Bindloss um, out of country appeals. Um, Cause of appeal case, um, I feel we need to mention where a barrister is chastised over the conduct of an asylum appeal, um, particularly in terms of the uh, extent of the arguments going beyond the grounds of appeal um, and the skeleton argument being um, overly long and also the authorities bundle not complying with the practice direction on authorities. Um, so it, it, it's um, you know, it's another one of these cases where um, there's been a bit of a um, argy-bargy, should we say, between immigration professionals, um, lawyers and um, the judiciary. Um, by no means at the top end of that spectrum. It's not like a Hamid case or anything like that. Um, but it's, it's one worth flagging up because the Court of Appeals clearly um, anxious about these kinds of issues, should we say. 
Right, and now finally on to the case of Khan and others against Secretary of State for the Home Department's 2018 EWCA Civ 1684. And this is a case that probably brings to an end the long-running ETS English language testing um, scandal or saga or whatever you want to call it. Now, I'm not going to go into the background of that. Um, it arises from um, a panorama investigation back in 2014 that revealed widespread cheating at a number of ETS test centres for the, the English language um, certificate that uh, migrants need in a variety of different routes um, to remain or enter the UK. Um, there's been a whole load of litigation on this, and all of that could have been avoided, essentially, if the Home Office and the courts had recognised that migrants would have an in-country right of appeal at which they were able to challenge the findings of dishonesty against them and look at the evidence on that and put forward their own explanation. The Home Office was absolutely against that. The courts were backed the Home Office up on that. And then along came Kiarian Bindloss and a case called Arsan in the Court of Appeal, in which the Court of Appeal basically changed its tack and um, held that the out-of-country right of appeal wasn't going to be adequate in a lot of these cases. Now, given where we're at with rights of appeal now and the changes to the appeal regime brought about by the Immigration Act 2014, um, this new case, Khan, um, essentially settles things by saying that um, a, a, an ETS scandal-affected person um, would have a human rights claim that can be put forward or usually would often have a human rights claim that can be put forward to the Home Office. Um, the Home Office needs to then look at that, make a decision. In these particular appeals, the claims would not be certified as clearly unfounded, but in other cases they might be. If the appellant succeeded at their human rights appeal on the basis they didn't commit the fraud, then the Home Office would withdraw the decisions accusing them of fraud and the Home Office would then grant a period of at least 60 days of leave to allow an application for further leave to be submitted. Obviously, this is applying where you're um, still within the UK, doesn't apply so much to people who've already been forced out, and I don't imagine that it gives them an automatic right of return for the reasons that we've just looked at in the earlier case of Khan. So um, if only the Home Office and the courts had recognised this some four years ago, um, then we wouldn't have had this endless string of litigation about these issues um, but we finally got where we should have been all along perhaps okay that wraps up for this month i hope that's been helpful and i'm back soon bye, -bye.